Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I work through the different shades of active management. We start by defining what a true passive portfolio would consist of, and then discuss how a popular index like the S&P 500, while rules-based and considered passive, still has some degree of active decision-making most investors don't realize. From index reweighting schemes, to quant systematic strategies, to active discretionary portfolio management, we discuss each of these on a sliding scale and the levels of active management in each. We hope the conversation helps investors understand the various types of active decisions being made in the markets today. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy the discussion. All right. Today, we're going to talk about the article you wrote, The Different Shades of Active Management, where you looked at all the different uh, types of actively managed strategies, um, even starting with passive investing, which we'll get into. But before we um, work our way through those, you sort of started your article with this idea of defining um, what a true passive portfolio would look like um, and how you know maybe what we all think of passive isn't truly um, isn't truly a passive or an all market portfolio. So I thought to start, do you want to sort of work through that introduction and then we'll get into the different types of active management? Almost everything we invest in is technically an active portfolio. And, and to understand why, I think the first thing you want to do is take a step back and say, what is a true passive portfolio look like? And so the, the true passive portfolio for the world would be the global market portfolio. And the global market portfolio would include all global assets in relation to their market caps. And so the U.S. might be something like 50% of that portfolio because the U.S. has something like 50% of the assets, but it would include things like art real estate, you know, private companies, things that you can't even value and things that you can't really invest in. So nobody really invests in the true global market portfolio. But for the purposes of my article, what I wanted to look at is the U.S. public equity market portfolio. So if I wanted to build the true U.S. equity public equity public market portfolio, what I would do is I would hold every public company in relation to their market cap. And that would be the true portfolio. And I don't know what that is now, four or 5,000 companies, something like that. I mean, you've got your, your million dollar in market cap penny stocks in there. You would hold all of that in relation to its market cap. And that would be the true US equity market portfolio. In reality, that doesn't really exist. You know, there, there really aren't too many funds that hold that. Fun, pretty much all funds get rid of your liquid investments and they get rid of some other things. So what I want to start out with is just Here's what the true U.S. equity market portfolio would look like. And then I wanted to look at some different forms of active management, starting from the least active, going to the most active, and look at the pros and cons of each one of them. Yeah. So let's start out with, um, I guess, the least active, which would be what most would consider a passive portfolio, and that's the S&P 500. Um, you know, I think when you ask people, like, how, how do you invest in the U.S. stock market, you know, I, I think the most, most investors would say, well, I'll just buy the S&P. Um, you know, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is a much, it's also a barometer or yardstick, if you will, of the US economy, but that's even less companies than the S&P 500, which is, I don't even think there's 500 stocks in the S&P at this point. Um, it's, it's less than that. But what the point I think you were making in the article was that the S&Ps actually 
not really as passive as maybe many investors might understand. Yeah, what I think you want to do is you want to get away from the negative connotation of the word active. Whenever anybody says the S&P 500 is active, it's seen as sort of a knock on it. Like, you know, passive is great, active is terrible, so it's horrible for the S&P 500 to be active. Well, the reality is the S&P 500 is active, but it's also not a bad thing. And so what the S&P 500 does, is, I'll read it here in a second, but the S&P 500 has a series of rules. If you go back to that, that US market portfolio I was talking about before, it has a series of rules that filters down from that to what they hold. And what, I'll read the, their actual description. To be eligible for the S&P 500 index inclusion, a company should be a US company, have a market capitalization of at least 8.2 billion, be highly liquid, have a public float of at least 50% of its shares outstanding, and its most recent quarter's earnings and the sum of its trailing four consecutive quarter's earnings must be positive. So if, if you start with that market portfolio I was talking about, we're doing several things here with the S&P 500. First, we're getting rid of all small cap stocks and most mid cap stocks. Second, we're getting rid of illiquid stocks, which is probably not a big deal, but, but it, it's something they're doing. Next, we're getting rid of companies that don't make money. If you don't make money in the recent quarter or if you don't make money in the sum of the most recent four quarters, you're out as well. And then the final step with the S&P 500, which we'll talk, talk about when we talk about Tesla in a second, is once all those rules are met, a committee of people meets and decides if a stock gets in the portfolio, even after meeting the quantitative criteria. So what you really have there is you have a quantitative active portfolio and you also have a discretionary active portfolio, both being combined together. But the, the reason that's not a bad thing is two reasons. First of all, that portfolio does a very good job of fairly closely tracking what the actual US passive portfolio would do because the true market portfolio would be market cap weighted. So it would be much more heavily weighted towards the biggest companies. And the S&P 500 includes all of the biggest companies. I think it's something like 80 some odd percent of total US market cap is in the S&P 500. And the second thing is the S&P 500 actually beats 80 plus percent of active strategies. So even if it is an active strategy, it's actually beating the vast majority of other active strategies. So it is an active strategy, but that's not a bad thing because it does a good job of representing the market and it beats other. Yeah. And it is really weighted towards, like you just said, you know, the largest companies in the market. Um, so when those large companies are doing really well, um, you get this, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to beat. It's hard to beat the S&P. Plus, you know, there's this, I, I guess, evidence in, in stocks that with an index that that large, you know, the stocks that are really moving up, you know, they're always going to be in the index. They're always going to be included in there because they're gaining market cap and they're becoming a heavier weight um, in the S&P. But like you said, and maybe we can use Tesla as an example, you know, there is some human discretion over the stocks that are getting in and included in, in, the, in the actual index. Right. So most people watching us are probably familiar with what happened with Tesla. You know, after they reported their most recent quarter, and some people argue, you know, they stuffed as much, you know, revenue into the current quarter as they could in order to get included in the S&P. The most recent quarter was profitable, and that made them meet all of the quantitative rules for the S&P 500 I talked about before. But following that, the S&P 500 index committee met and they decided we're not going to include Tesla. And so whether that was a good or bad decision, I mean, it's hard, it's hard to judge, but Tesla would be one of the bigger companies in the S&P 500 if it was in there. And so if, if to argue that the S&P 500 is a truly a passive portfolio, think about what happened there. 
Number one, there were a series of quantitative rules Tesla had to meet before it was even considered. And number two, once those were met, a group of people sat down and said, are we putting it in? Are we not putting it in? So that is an active portfolio. It's, it's a good active portfolio, but there are clearly active decisions being made in terms of what's in the S&P 500. So I guess moving up the chain in terms of um, activeness with an investment strategy, you have the number two uh, type of, I guess, portfolio, which is taking a index like the S&P and just reweighting the constituents based on some other measure. So not necessarily market cap, um, some other measure of fundamental value to try to get away from an overweight on market cap into something else. Um, so do you want to kind of just flush that out a little bit? Look at the, if you look at the long-term results, market cap is not something you want to wait on. If, because as, as, you, as the market cap of a stock goes up and up, you end up owning more and more of the stock. So as it gets more expensive, you end up owning more and more of it. So if you, if you trust the long-term data, you want to wait on something else other than market cap. Almost anything works. And, and those types of portfolios, although they'll deviate from the market, they typically will produce an excess return over the market over time. So with, with this type of approach, you can use things like, you know, research affiliates is, is known for their fundamental, uh, their fundamental weighting or fundamental indexing, I think they call it. And they, one of the things they do is weight based on sales. And so if you weight based on sales instead of market cap, what you're doing is you're looking at that company's actual footprint in the economy, how big are they are, big they are in the economy relative to what their stock price is. And so for, we talked about Tesla before for a stock like Tesla, that can be a major difference. So this year, in, in whatever portfolios Tesla was in, and it wasn't actually in the S&P, but for whatever portfolios Tesla was in, it was becoming a bigger and bigger and bigger weight as the stock price went way up. But the sales weren't up that much this year. So in a, in a fundamental index portfolio based on sales, Tesla would not have been climbing throughout the year. So there's a lot of different ways you can do it. You can do it with value. You know, you can do it with momentum. You can do it with something like sales. But the point here is these are, this is the least active portfolio. We're, we're taking the constituents in the index and we're trying to reweight them in such a way that we get a better return. You, you, there's funds like that equal weight, the S&P 500 that you can easily invest in. There's, there's one I know that reverse market cap weights them, but whatever you're doing, the goal is not a massive deviation from the S&P 500, but start with the same stocks and reweight them based on something you think is better than market cap. Mm -hmm. The next one was um, the closet indexer, which this isn't really, I guess the, the, this is like the, um, the type of strategy where someone basically buys something very similar to the market and then, you know, charges a very high or high management fee, um, which basically guarantees that, you know, the investor investing in it isn't going to basically match the um, index returns. Um, so you, I think you were just pointing that out to say, you know, this is also another type of active management, the high fee closet indexing type of strategy that are becoming, I think, less and less. And I think investors are waking up to strategies like this that probably aren't good for them. Like you said, thankfully, this is going away because this, this is, as you said, this is an example of I'll look a lot like the market so that I don't have that tracking error so that when I'm underperforming the market, people don't get rid of me but I'll charge fees that are way higher than the market. So effectively, you're gonna look like the market, your return might not be all that different than the market, but you also have zero chance of ever beating it because you don't look different enough relative to your fees to actually generate any alpha. And like you said, we don't have to spend a lot of time on this because this is mostly going away. People are finding these types of funds and they're not investing them anymore, they're losing assets. When you can buy passive or not passive, but index type portfolios as cheap as you can now, the people following the index and charging 1% just, just aren't going to make it. And they're, they're sort of going away at this point. 
Right. The next one was um, the factor-based approach, but I guess I'll, I'll call this the quantitative-based approach, which is similar to what we do here um, in terms of taking rules-based investment strategies and then constructing portfolios um, of stocks. You know, what we're doing is we're holding much more focused, concentrated baskets of securities versus a broad-based um, uh, index like the S&P 500. But the idea here is to use, you know, the factors that have worked over time to weight stocks based on those factors in the attempt to um, generate outperformance above the market. So this approach can be a little bit active or it can be really active. You have some factor smart beta type funds that aren't all that different in the market. And, you know, they charge low fees, but they make minor changes based on something like value or momentum or quality or low volatility. And then you have, as you referenced, people like us who or our friends at Alpha Architect who take a much more aggressive approach and run really focused factor portfolios. But either way, no matter how you're doing it, what you're trying to do is find a factor that's shown an excess return over the market over time. You're trying to use that factor to select the stocks within your portfolio. And then you're trying to limit the role of emotions and biases in your, in your investing process. Because obviously we, we know that human decision-making can, can have many, many negative consequences associated with it. And so you're trying to eliminate those and you're trying to use academic research to follow the factors that have worked over the long term. But it can be, you know, this can be a little bit active or it can be really active. It just depends on who's doing it. Right. And just, you know, to contrast that with um, obviously something like the, the S&P 500 and or like a fundamentally weighted index, the more, I guess, investment criteria that are included in this factor-based active approach that we're talking about, or the size of the portfolio in terms of the level of concentration, you know, what that results in is a portfolio that looks very, very different from the market and one that can have you know pretty significant deviation from the overall market um, over short and even longer term periods of time. So I think one of your points in your article is you know as you start to look even more different than the market, and this is kind of go, this might be obvious, but you know these factor based based approaches, while they're taking rules based uh, sort of systems into account, you know you can end up looking very very different from the market and have you know pretty significant tracking error. Even though we run these portfolios, I've said for most people, these, especially the aggressive version of these portfolios, is probably not for most investors. And the reason is, like you said, you can have easily years where you're 10, 15, 20% behind the market. You can have five, 10 year periods where you trail the market. These factors have shown that they can go, especially you know, what we're seeing with value right now, these factors have shown that they can go out of favor for really extended periods of time. And it's very, very hard for investors to stick with these through the ups and downs that come with that. So the, the aggressive version of these are probably not for most investors. They are for investors who can, who can stay the course during those things. But there's also the less aggressive versions where you're looking more like the market, but you are trying to get some benefit from the factors. So th those can be good for some investors as well. Right. We live in kind of this world of quantitative investment strategies. I mean, that's what we've done for uh, almost 20 years now. So, you know, day in and day out, that's what we work with and deal with. But I, I, I still think the vast majority of assets that are managed in equity investment strategies um, that are active are probably managed by human portfolio managers. Um, the days of, you know, the Peter Lynch sort of star managers might be over, but there's still, I think, you know, there, there's something that, you know, there's more CFAs now getting people getting their CFA than there ever has been before. So you have, you still have, you know, a, a lot of people managing money professionally 
Um, and the human active manager is probably the most active, the one that's making decisions based on um, financials and, and, and valuations and fundamentals. But then, you know, there's a degree of discretion in there around whether or not they think the company is going to continue to grow, the management of the company, the things that, you know, a portfolio manager would look at. And that's the last sort of, I guess, most active way that you can manage money, which is, you know, a human portfolio manager actually making the final call on the investment decisions. And as you said, we talked about this in our podcast with John Rakenthaler. This is becoming the star manager or the manager that can consistently beat the market. They're, they always were a rare thing, but they're becoming a much rarer thing. And, you know, one of the problems here is the, the fact that all these factors have been discovered, value and quality and momentum, this is just what active managers were doing all along. They just didn't know they were doing it. And so when you take those factors and you put them in low cost funds where somebody, you know, for a very low fee now can follow something like value, it becomes much harder for the value manager to outperform the market or to outperform the factor itself because that, that value manager was just picking value stocks. And, and now that fact, that's not alpha anymore. That factor, you know, just the general returns of that factor are available very cheaply. So it becomes much harder for these active managers to produce these long-term track records outperforming the market. So this is a very, this is something that's probably going to continue to decline. Although, as you said, it's probably the biggest part of active management right now. Over time, you'd expect this to decline because it's just becoming a much more challenging thing to do. Yeah, that was something that Larry Schledrow recently was, uh, he was on uh, Tobias Carlyle's Acquires Multiple podcast. And he was basically saying, you know, alpha has become beta. So as we now understand the driver's of stock returns, more of the drivers, you know, you can basically get those exposures pretty cheaply and pretty cost effectively. So to your point, it just becomes harder, you know, for these active managers basically to outperform, not that they're not out there and they are, um, but you know, they're certainly not as uh, popular or put up in the limelight as the Peter Lynch's of the world, which, you know, are few and far between these days. So, um, yeah, so I guess in, in conclusion, you know, there's a lot of different, when you sort of start to think about all the different ways that investment strategies, equity investment strategies can be built and constructed, even when you're thinking about the most basic, something like the S&P 500, there's certainly a level of some activeness in there. And then you can kind of go down the list. And I think as an investor, what I think we're hoping to do with this discussion is just to say, you know, it's good to understand uh, this stuff. And as you think about, you know, your own investment strategies to really, when you're looking at an investment product or an ETF or a manager or strategy, just to try to get your arms around, you know, where is this on the active management sort of spectrum? And does that sort of fit in the line with what you're sort of, you're looking for and you believe in, I guess, when, you know, having your money managed or, you know, managing your money yourself. The goal of this wasn't to say any of these are necessarily good or any of these are necessarily bad. It was more to say when you're looking, like you said, when you're looking at a strategy, this sort of five-step process might be a good way for you to classify where that strategy falls. Is it, you know, a, a very index-like product? Is it a very active product? And then maybe to couple that with what is it charging? You know, is, is it what it's charging appropriate with where it falls along this continuum? I think that's just a good way to evaluate active strategies, but you can do well with any of these. You can do, obviously, an index approach probably works for most people, but you can do very well with factor-based approaches. You can do very well with a person picking the stocks, assuming you can identify that person in advance that they have the capacity to beat the market. The only one you probably can't do well with is the closet, in closet indexer. But other than that, you know, this is just a matter of classifying these and not necessarily judging which ones are better or which ones are worse. Great. Well, I think that's a good way to uh, sum it up. So guys, thanks for watching and we'll see you next time. Thank you.
Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at @jjcarboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.